All right, Remnant, how are we doing? Excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. And, and uh, if you're a guest, my, my prayer and my hope is that you just uh, are able to, to get to know this God that we've discovered and that we love so much it's a little bit better. And it doesn't matter where you are in your journey. If you're not even sure God exists, that's incredible because he's sure you exist and he'll reveal himself to you. And we're all just kind of on this journey to go deeper. And uh, last night we had beach baptism, which was incredible. Um, it was amazing. We had uh, some great testimonies. We had a great time. Uh, we uh, baptized six people. None of them drowned. We got them all back up out of the water. It was really a great experience. We've been in a series that I called What in the World's Going On? And it's a series that we've been looking at sort of what's happening in our world. What, why are things happening the way where they're happening? What... It just seems like there's this, it just seems to us like things are winding down. And it turns out that God, who, who gave us his Bible, had a lot to say about what's happening in our world today and what's going to be happening in the future. And so we've been on this journey for the last few weeks, and, and we've been looking at how God is kind of positioning the world for what he calls end times. We looked at the spiritual battle that's raging around us and how it set the stage philosophically and politically and geographically and ideologically and spiritually. We've seen the growing apostasy of humanism. Seeing the globalism that around the world that's allowed that false teaching to spread like wildfire. We've studied the regathering of the Jewish people to the Holy Land explored the reuniting of the Roman Empire, and we've talked about the coming Middle East peace. We come to a better understanding of the promises in the Bible because we learned about the credibility of God because he's a covenant God. We understand God's unilateral and eternal and unconditional covenants that he made with David and Abraham and Noah and us. And we've dealt with the huge elephant in the room last week. If you did not hear the sermon, I encourage you to do so. We talked about this wrath of God that makes us so uncomfortable. And we learned that the wrath of God is actually a, a, a normal, loving reaction to a challenge of His holiness. It's an expression of His love, and it's just His response to all things that are unloving and hurtful to us. We learn that his wrath seems extreme to us because we've downplayed his holiness. That we don't really fully understand just how holy he is and how horrible sin is to his holiness. We talked about how in the spirit we've almost been allowed, like Peter, James, and John, who went up on top of the mountain and saw Jesus' holiness unveiled, that we've been able to do that through the spirit. And that when we understand just how holy and just how pure and just how incredible he is, then we begin to understand just how horrible sin is. And then we begin to understand why his reaction to it is so strong. And we learn that his response is actually appropriate and loving. And that's why we call it the blessed hope. That's where we've been in just four short weeks. Four really long sermons. Tonight I want to set the stage. I want to give an overview of the events that will occur according to Scripture in the future. But I want to explain a few things first, as always. 
there's not a lot of debate among scholars of the events of end times themselves. You read the Bible, you can come to an understanding that there are certain events that are just going to happen. Most credible scholars acknowledge that the Bible is pretty clear on events like the joining together again of the Roman Empire, the nation of Israel coming together, the rise of the Antichrist from that Roman Empire, the the two million army from the east, the gathering of the world to a battle at Armageddon. In the seven-year time of tribulation, they don't argue or really debate that those events are going to happen. They're events. They're future events. They're in Scripture, and they're going to happen just like everything else in the Bible, exactly as the Bible says. And almost all credible scholars are in total agreement that Scripture is pretty clear on those things. Real events that will happen in human history. The difference of opinion has to do with the timing the order, and the specifics, perhaps, of which nation or which person, or or how is it actually, what are the details of exactly how it's going to happen? For example, most believe that the rapture is going to happen, but they debate when it's going to happen. Does it happen before the tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation? Or is it part of Jesus' second coming? Some debate the timing of the tribulation and believe we're going through it right now. Some, despite Jesus telling us not to, are still trying to predict the date of his return. It's easy to read about end times and get lost in the timing or specific predictions. And then miss the important point. These prophecies by God will occur in our future. And they're going to occur exactly as God says they will. We may not know all the details, but we know enough to get ourselves ready. So what I want to do tonight is set the stage for the discussions we're going to have in the weeks ahead to make sure that we all understand the lingo or the language that we're going to be talking about. To present you tonight what I believe is the best scripturally supported outline of the events to come. They may not be in the right order, but we have to start somewhere and have some kind of context to begin our study. The outline that I believe best aligns with Scripture is a futurist, premillennial, pre-tribulation, rapture perspective. There you go. Okay, don't worry. We're not going to go into all that. All I'm saying is I'm a futurist. I believe the things that God says in the Bible will happen in the future. I'm premillennial meaning that I believe that we're not currently living in the millennial kingdom of God, that it's yet to come, and I believe the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation. Not complicated. I have this view because it seems to align best with Scripture and where the world is today. More importantly, after studying Scripture, I have a strong sense of internal peace regarding those views that I can't get with the other views. I'm not here to debate views. I'm not here to even say I'm right. I'm more concerned that we recognize the events of our world and that we prepare for whatever God's getting ready to do and that we trust his word will be what his word says. I'm not that focused on getting every prediction right. I want to get us right for those predictions. We need to be less concerned about who the Antichrist is and more concerned about the people he's deceiving. We need to be less concerned about which day Jesus will return and more concerned about the fact that he will return and whether we're prepared for him or not. 
We need to be less concerned about the timing of the rapture and more concerned about living in the reality of that so that we can share the gospel knowing he could come back at any minute. I've watched Christians attack one another, get wrapped around the axle about their certainty of minute details related to end times. Arrogantly put down others who disagree with them and have a different perspective. Believe me, I know I've been getting the emails. <laughs> but let's acknowledge that we're on a need-to-know basis. Let's focus on the events that God has clearly revealed to us. Try to put them in some kind of logical order. And leave the details and specifics to the one who actually knows. I honestly don't think we're going to be disappointed if Jesus shows up tonight. I don't think we're going to say, hey, you're early. (coughs) You're supposed to be post-trib. I figured it all out in your word. What are you doing here? We don't care. He's here. So let's move forward with humility and grace, recognizing that there are many views but only one God, and that he's going to unfold his plan exactly the way he wants to unfold his plan, regardless of what we think about it, or regardless of what we think has to happen, regardless of the order that we think it'll happen, or the timing in which it'll happen. And let's just be really glad that when he comes back, we're on his side. We're going to give up our right to be right on the details. So you can see that with all the various scriptures... We need to put some kind of framework together so we can better understand these events. We need an outline. We need a flow diagram of some sort. We need a common set of terms as we move forward. And we need what I would call a prophetic clock. According to prophecy in Daniel, we are living right now in what's called the church age. It is a time that's unspecified in length where God is holding back judgment as he brings his word, his gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. When the Jewish people rejected Jesus, the message was then given to the Gentiles for a time. And the church age started with the day of Pentecost and it will end with the day of the rapture. You remember when Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem and he stopped at the Mount of Olives and he looked over the city and he lamented the fact that the Jewish people had not received him as Messiah. Let's look at it. Matthew 27, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's as if in that moment, God pressed the pause button on what he's doing with the Jewish people. They would reject and crucify Jesus. He would press pause. And for however long, there's a Gentile period of time when, thank God, the gospel comes to us. We've been living in that era. But there's going to be a moment in the future when Jesus returns to that very Mount of Olives. God stops the pause button and the Jewish people are going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. The next event on God's prophetic clock is the rapture of the church. And we're going to spend a couple weeks on this coming up. 
The rapture is when all believers in Jesus who are alive and on earth will suddenly in the blink of an eye be snatched away to meet Jesus in the clouds. In that moment, will be, those who have died will be bodily resurrected, the believers, and rejoined with their perfected spirits. The rapture will shock the world. It will initiate end times. The world will try to make sense of that disappearance. And the loss of millions of people will be catastrophic to world economies, nations, and the global scene in general. Just imagine. It's going to be incredible. And remember from the prior weeks that the rapture has no signs that precede it. It is a signless event. All the signs that Jesus talked about relate to his second coming at the end of tribulation, not the rapture. The rapture could happen before I finish speaking tonight. There's nothing preceding it. As a result of the rapture, we believe, from Scripture, that there will be a group of ten leaders that come out of the old Roman Empire, and they're going to restore order and some sense of normalcy. Okay? Most believe that the rapture will in some way, that catastrophic event, significantly weaken the United States and the West. You can imagine our, our economy is very fragile. And we likely will be part of a new order that involves the reestablished Roman Empire. Daniel 7.23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. A leader from among these ten nations is going to quietly but specifically begin to take leadership. He'll be very persuasive. He'll rise out of insignificance and obscurity. And the Bible gives him the title Antichrist. He will lead this group of ten nations out of Europe that is a rebirth of the Roman Empire. Revelation 6.1, Now watch the Lamb open the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. In Daniel 7 we read of him, And another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from all the former ones. And he'll put down three kings. So we believe of those ten nations, three of the kings, he will take care of in some way. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Daniel continues. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which the four horns arose, four kingdoms shall arise from the nation, but not with his power. And the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he'll be great. Without warning, he will destroy many. And he shall rise up even against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. 
At that time, the Antichrist is going to rise up. He'll use the vacuum of the rapture or some other world event to lead himself into power. The people will almost push him forward as their leader. He won't use an army. He won't take over. They will just make him a leader. He will seem humble. He will seem gracious. He will seem loving. He he will be the opposite of Satan, and he'll be trying to mimic Jesus. He's going to sign a peace agreement between this newly established European group and the country of Israel. The signing of that agreement triggers what God calls the seven years of tribulation. Okay? So we have this new European order. Antichrist leading it, but not yet identified by people. Signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's when you'll know who he is. When that peace treaty is signed, the Bible says a time of tribulation starts. Now you can imagine how thrilled the Islamic world is going to be with a reborn Roman Empire and a peace agreement with Israel. The Bible says that's going to trigger a war. And that war in the Bible is called the the War of Gog and Magog. Russia, along with a massive Islamic coalition, will take advantage of the confusion after the rapture, the weakened West, and the passivity of the newly revealed Antichrist. And they will launch a full-out assault on the nation of Israel. The Bible refers to this as the battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38.3 And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, and the prince of Rosh, Mesach, and Tubal. And prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth to Gama from the remote parts of the north to all its troops, many peoples with you. Okay, now here's what this means. Gog is a leader. Rosh is Russia. Particularly the northern land, uh, Magog, is northern Russia. Magog, according to the historian Josephus, is the land of the former Soviet Union, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and most likely Afghanistan. Rosh is Russia to the north. Meshach and Tubal are Lebanon and Turkey. Persia is modern-day Iran. Kush is Ethiopia. Put is Libya. Gomer is central Turkey. And Beth Tagama is Turkey. Ezekiel continues, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? In other words, they'll be under a peace agreement. You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of you riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land, and the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. But on that day, the day that Gog shall become against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him from torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of the nations. They will know that I am the Lord. What he's saying is, look, there's going to be a moment when Russia and all of the Islamic allies of Russia are going to decide now is the time to strike. We can finally take out Israel. And they're going to amass a massive army. And it's going to look like Israel is against the world because they are. And it's going to look like they have absolutely no chance. And it's clear that Russia will have five allies. Turkey, Iran, Libya, Sudan, and Central Asian nations. Can you imagine how hopeless it's going to look for Israel? All these nations devoted to their destruction and seemingly no one to help them defend themselves. Because although there is a treaty between the reborn Roman Empire for peace and Israel, they don't seem to be allies. They, they agreed not to invade them, but don't seem to be there when they get invaded. No one will come to the aid of Israel, and it looks like it's going to be impossible for them to survive. Yet God is going to supernaturally protect Israel. The armies are going to turn on themselves. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be supernatural things that happen. And this battle is going to be launched, and the Islamic nations with Russia are going to be destroyed. This battle is necessary in order for the Antichrist to have world power. The destruction of Russia and almost all the Islamic nations will leave a huge power vacuum in the world. And the Antichrist will be positioned to dominate. He'll likely take credit for the destruction of Russia and Islamic partners, claiming that God removed the intolerant Christians first, and now he's ushered in punishment on the other intolerant religion of Islam. He may even claim to have some supernatural powers or supernatural weapon. Either way, he's going to seize this moment and take it to his advantage to become the leader of the world. And it is the collapse of Russia and the Islamic nations that set the stage for a global empire. In the first three and a half years after the signing of the peace agreement, it's going to look like things are going very smoothly. The Jewish nation is going to be at peace and they're going to be ecstatic about it. The Islamic issue now gone, they can begin to focus on rebuilding the temple. They can begin to focus on, on the peace that the Antichrist has brought to them. Many Jewish people and Gentiles will see the Antichrist as the promised Messiah because he's brought peace to the world. He's removed intolerance, including anti-Semitism. And he's beginning to rebuild the Jewish temple and allow them to have sacrifices once again. From the Jewish perspective, this is exactly what the Messiah promised. World peace, a rebuilt temple, the protection of the Jewish people. The Bible says there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will tell the truth about Jesus. And they will be protected and they will begin teaching during this time. And so there will be a voice for God to the Jewish people and to others about what's really happening. 
They'll perhaps be led by two witnesses who will be professing, telling the truth throughout the first half of the tribulation. The Antichrist will begin to establish a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy. He will have a false prophet who precedes him, who begins to worship him as God. He will have someone similar to John the Baptist go ahead of him first. He will seem to, the, the uh, Antichrist will in, likely have some kind of head wound that looks fatal, and it'll seem like he has resurrected from that head wound. Uh, and when he does that, he will begin to declare himself as God. At that point, he will go into the temple to the Holy of Holies. He will set himself up as God. He'll demand that the world worship him. And it's called the abomination of desolation. He will demand that everybody take his mark. And he will set himself up as God. He will turn on the Jewish people. He will begin to destroy them. The Antichrist will at that time silence the two witnesses for Christ. He'll appear to kill them. The Bible says they will lay dead for three days and then miraculously resurrect in front of, in some manner that the entire world sees. Think how foreign that idea was a hundred years ago. Throughout the seven years of tribulation, the seals and bold judgments of Christ are poured out on the world, each one trying to get people to choose between Jesus and the Antichrist. God proving over and over that he is God, the Antichrist trying over and over to promote his humanism, his globalism, the, the worship of the human, and particularly the worship of him. He will do everything he can do to try to mock Jesus and also at the same time mimic him. Two great events bring the tribulation to a close, the war of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. In the second coming of Christ, Jesus literally and physically returns to earth on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half move southward. When we were in Israel on our first trip... Um, they told us a story about the Mount of Olives because there were so many visitors that the one place you don't see any hotels and you don't see any big buildings is east of Jerusalem along the Mount of Olives and the, basically the ravine that heads down to the Dead Sea. And yet it's one of the most popularly visited places on earth. We were told that when the Hyatt Regency decided they wanted to build a hotel on the east side of Jerusalem just beyond the Mount of Olives that they could not build on it because there is a fault line that runs north, east, west, splitting north and south all the way from Jerusalem's east gate to the Dead Sea. Matthew twenty four twenty six. Jesus talking about this moment when the Antichrist declared himself as God. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. 
And then all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus' second coming will be physical, it'll be real, and the entire world will know it in an instant. The angels will gather up those who have become believers during the tribulation. And Jesus will bring them to join those who've been raptured. The Antichrist, the Bible says, will lead huge armies against Israel with genocidal intent. Jesus will return to earth accompanied by the armies of heaven. The armies will not fight. Jesus will decimate simply by speaking. Daniel 7, speaking of the Antichrist, says this. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominions and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and the dominion shall serve and obey him. Jesus will seize the Antichrist, the false prophet, and cast them into the lake of fire. During the second coming, the Old Testament says, saints and believers will be resurrected. We will all be reunited with Christ. The end of the tribulation period brings about what the Bible calls the 1,000-year reign of Christ that we call the millennial kingdom. Okay? So let's just go back and make sure we're all on the same page. Rapture, restructuring of the world, peace treaty with Israel, the arrival of the Antichrist, the Magog, Magog War, peace with Israel, rebuilding of the temple, Rebuilding of the sacrifice, three and a half years in, I'm God. Starts killing anybody who doesn't believe with him. The next three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation, which is a horrible time. And Jesus says, look, if you're on earth during that time, you run. The end of that tribulation will be the Battle of Armageddon. And it will be associated with the second coming of Christ. After that, there will be what's called a millennial era, a thousand year era. Christ will reign in peace and prosperity, fulfilling God's original plan for creation. Believers who survive the tribulation, both Jews and Gentiles, will enter the messianic kingdom in their natural human bodies and will have children and populate the kingdom. Those on earth when Christ returns who do not trust in him will be cast to hell. Meanwhile, Satan and his minions will be bound in an abyss. And at the end of the millennium, for reasons most of us don't understand, Satan will be released for a brief period of time to lead a final rebellion against Christ, and then he'll be defeated and cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Amen. Then there's the final judgment. Christ will sit on the great white throne, and all unbelievers from every age will be resurrected and assembled before him to be judged. It's called the final resurrection. Those will be judged according to their deeds, and since they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, their names will not be in the book of life, and they'll be consigned to the lake of fire forever. Then we enter into the eternal state. The final state of God's prophetic program will be ushered in with the destruction of the present heaven and earth and the creation of a new heaven and earth. And a heavenly city, Jerusalem, will come down from heaven and sit on the new earth as the capital city. It will be the size of a continent, 1,500 miles uh, cubic. So that's the overview. That's what's most likely going to happen should be interesting. We're seeing signs of it already. Turkey, which has always been a Western ally, has suddenly become hostile to the United States. 
and much more aligned with Islam than ever before. The large migration of those from Syria and other desert areas into Europe will likely play a role in the ten Roman countries. And they will likely play a role in the reason why those countries don't help Israel when Israel's attacked. Because we learned in scriptures a few weeks ago that their feet are made of iron and clay. And there is a weakness in that nation. And that weakness is there's going to be a lot of people who aren't particularly Israel friendly but have migrated from countries that are pro-Islam. And that's why I believe that Israel will be alone, that no one will come to their aid, including God says no one's coming to their aid. It's not a coincidence that Russia is building strong alliances with Iran and most Muslim nations and that forces in Syria are aligned against the West with Russian support. They're clearly trying to nuclearize those nations and bring them up in power, just like the Bible says. Some have suggested that there's going to be a war between the West and Iran-Iraq, and it's imminent due to the prophecies of Daniel 8, where a strong goat-like leader from the West attacks Iran and Iraq without touching the ground, implying air air support, subdues those nations, and establishes a great victory. Think about the reemergent of Russia in the last 25 years. That nation had completely fallen apart. Many people said, well, how can Russia play a role in end times? They just dissolved. Look what's happened in the last 10 years. Not only have they come back on the world stage as a player, they've come back on the world stage as the player. Watch the news. It's all about Russia. And it's not just our elections. It's about their support of all these Islamic countries. It's about their support behind the scenes of of all these countries and supplying them with military things. Jewish people are preparing for the prophesied third temple. This has been increasing in the last 15 to 20 years. They're beginning to stockpile resources. They're trying to find temple ornaments. They're they're looking for animals for sacrifice. They're attempting to identify priests and others who are essential to the operation of a new temple in Jerusalem. A group of leading Israeli rabbis have written both to President Donald Trump and Russia's Vladimir Putin... Professor Rabbi Halel Weiss, a spokesman for the Sanhedrin, a modern effort to revive the ancient Jewish religious court, noted in remarks reported by the Israeli National News. The Sanhedrin sent letters to both Trump and Putin, urging them to work together to fulfill a project that will benefit all mankind, the rebuilding of the Holy Temple atop Jerusalem's hotly contested Temple Mount. Both leaders have expressed support for Jewish claims to Jerusalem, though Trump has certainly been the most vocal of the two. At any rate, Israel is poised to rebuild the temple. That's from November of last year. Another group, the Temple Institute, has been actively pushing to obtain temple elements, recreating a holy altar, drew up architectural plans, raised and has begun raising millions of dollars, and also has been raising the sacred red heifers that are going to be needed for ceremonial purposes. Like I said, sign, sign, everywhere sign. The nations are starting to align. The world theology is starting to align. The way the world is moving is starting to align. It's all playing out exactly as God said it would in his word. So with that framework in mind, I want to take us back to a place. The place is the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem. The time is three days before Jesus' crucifixion. The event... Jesus preached a sermon to a select group of his disciples. 
He was responding to a question from one of the disciples about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. The audience was just four men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Imagine the intimacy of this moment. Immediately before the sermon, Jesus and his disciples had been in Jerusalem on the temple grounds. No doubt the disciples were very impressed with what man had built. The temple was indeed glorious. It was a tribute to God. But like so many things we offer to God, sometimes we begin to own them as ours, right? And it's likely that the disciples were looking at the temple, talking about what a great structure that was and how incredible it was. Jesus, it seems, is concerned that they're looking at the temple and talking pride in human achievements. So it seems appropriate that this response would trigger kind of a babble response from Jesus. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him and pointed out the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine the disciples. They've just left the temple. They've talked about how great the temple is. And Jesus has said, you know, it's all coming down, right? It's not only going to be coming down, it's going to be destroyed and wiped out. So they keep walking through the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. Maybe whispering to each other, how, how could this be? The temple destroyed, the temple demolished. To understand their bewilderment, you need to remember what that temple means to the Jewish nation. It's everything. That's where God is. That's where the Torah was. That's, that's where everything was. The sacrifices, everything is in the temple. The temple is the place we all come to meet. It is the most important place in the world. What, what are you talking about? It's not going to be standing? How, how, how could it happen, they would think, that God would destroy his own temple? What is Jesus talking about? It'd be like us standing at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And let's say we're like the most patriotic person on the planet. And somebody tells us, hey, you see that Capitol building over there, the Washington Monument, the, the uh, Lincoln Memorial, the Smithsonian? You see all that? coming down. There'll be a day when you stand here and all of it will be in rubble. There won't be any of it left. Imagine how heartbreaking that would be. So by the time they get to the Mount of Olives, they begin to press in for more information. Not all of them, just a few, the leaders, and they do it privately. Verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They didn't doubt it was going to happen. Just like we do. We don't doubt it's going to happen. We just want to know what the signs are. How will we get ready? When will we know? They were asking one question with three big parts. For them, the destruction of the temple, the second coming of the Messiah, and the end of the world were all tied together. In what is now known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus provides a concise but comprehensive overview of end times. He gives us a blueprint for the end, a checklist, if you will. 
And in just 27 verses, he moves from the beginning of the tribulation to the second coming of Christ. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. When you look at the original language, it's kingdom against kingdom. It's ethnos against ethnos. It's, it's culture against culture. It's religion against religion. You're going to start seeing that. Don't be alarmed, but it is the beginning of birth pains. See, a lot of times we dismiss that and say, oh, that's just the beginning of birth pains. That comes from the men in the group. The women in the group know what the beginning of birth pains are like. It's a huge event, but it's not as bad as it's going to get. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. Eight signs, Jesus says. False Christ, wars, famine, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, lawlessness, and worldwide preaching of the gospel. Like birth pains, they will increase in frequency and intensity and bring about a sense of urgency. And then Jesus says something startling. Then the end will come. That's not all. I mean, there's more. I mean, all that's going to happen and then there's more. So Jesus points them to what the prophet Daniel said. Next verse. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. In other words, when the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies, declares himself as God, and demands to be worshipped as God. The abomination of desolation. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to grab his clothes or his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. He's referring to the prophecy in Daniel, three and a half years into the tribulation, where the Antichrist turns on the Jewish people and declares himself as God. This passage Jesus is talking about, he's in the midpoint of the tribulation. And then the next passage describes the last three and a half years of that tribulation. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He continues, immediately after the tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give up its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And there will appear in the heaven the signs of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Do you know why all the, all the tribes are going to be mourning? Because they're going to recognize he's the Messiah and they've missed it. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And when Jesus finishes this explanation of end times, he tells them to pay attention to the fig tree. When you see the fig tree beginning to change, don't be dumb. You know it's coming. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. That's what this series is all about. Jesus told his followers, look, in this book, I'm laying out for you what's going to happen. When you see it beginning to happen, don't miss it. When you see things starting to happen, don't, don't miss them. Don't, don't not be prepared. Don't begin to share with other people. You see, I'm going to give you very specifics that make no sense to the people writing them years ago. But at some point in the future, you're going to see all of it. Just start coming together like a puzzle piece. And you're going to see nations start to rise up with the alliances that he said would happen that 100 years ago seemed impossible. You're going to see the Jewish nation come together. You're going to see all these things come together. And you shouldn't be surprised because I said it was going to happen. But when you see it starting to come together, don't miss what the fig tree's doing. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're sharing the gospel. In other words, I'm going to give you the headlines of the newspaper of the future before they ever happen. And I've been doing it for 2,000 years. And every time I've said something's going to happen, guess what? It happens. And every time I said these certain nations are going to exist when they didn't even exist before, bingo, there they are. He really, really, really wanted us to know what was going to happen. He really, really, really wanted us to know what was going to happen. 27% of the Bible has to do with future predictions and prophecy. 27%. Jesus talked about his second coming over and over and over. He wanted people to be ready. And yet... The entire scene is unfolding before us in our very time. And many, many, many believers in Christ are oblivious to what's going on. And we're seeing it all play out exactly as he said it would. And it's like I said in the very first week. Christmas has a lot of signs. Christmas trees, lights, decorations, music. Christmas has all kinds of signs, but Thanksgiving sneaks up on you. And Jesus says, look, there's going to be a ton of signs for my second coming. But my first, the, the rapture, is going to sneak up on you. Make sure you're ready. And he talks about all kinds of parables about bridesmaids having oil ready for when he returns. Not being caught asleep. How if you knew a thief was coming in the night, you wouldn't sleep through it. And over and over and over he tells us, be ready, I'm coming. So the next chapter on our prophetic clock is the rapture of the church. A day when those who truly believe in Jesus and have surrendered to Jesus will be called up to meet him in the clouds. 
There's nothing that has to happen before that day. Nothing prophetically that we're waiting on. The entire stage is set. Just a matter of God's timing. So for the next week or two, uh, I'm going to be talking about when will the believing be leaving. And I'm, I'm going to be talking about what does the Bible say about this rapture idea? It sounds crazy, right? It sounds ridiculous. But yet there's scripture that talk about it. We're going to talk about that. Because it's the one event we should all be really looking forward to. We should wake up every day going, hey, this could be the day. We could be home tonight. It, it's our hope. So between now and then, he's left us here to do work for him. To share his love with other people. And as the end times get closer and closer, it's more and more important that we take action and that we begin to share with people what's happening. That we begin to share with them the love of Christ. And we're going to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. We're going to acknowledge we may not even have the right order. But we understand what the Bible says and these things are going to happen.